Lost Sons, a podcast about masculinity and its challenges. About us. We start this new podcast focused on the subject of masculinity, having as the first guest a good friend of mine, Benjamin. He loves books and recently got engaged. Congrats, Ben. He is a writer and a curious soul, so I leave you with my questions and his answers. Hope you enjoy it. What does it mean to become a man? I think, um, I feel like the more I learn, probably the simpler my definition becomes. Um, I think it's helpful to start at the beginning. Um, a man is, I think, um, well, we have to split it into two things. We've got like, a biological male is obviously one thing, which I think is different from a man. So having a penis at birth or as I guess you're well aware and you'll probably hear a lot of, um, you know, now it's possible to transition um, and kind of have uh, medical operations for. I think it's important to kind of make that difference between a male and a man. I think a man is a bit more social and i know that in um a lot of kind of academic circles kind of around subjects like the humanities and the arts so um subjects that work closely with types of philosophy um a lot of the ideas from gender studies and feminist theory would now separate a man from a male and basically define a man as a kind of role in society, a gender role. So something that you perform um, to sort of become a man. So it's a type of criteria, um, a set of behaviors, or even a way you feel about yourself that would make you a man. And so this kind of can open it up to, um, you know, either biological um, males from birth or people that might transition to become a male later on or identify as a male. Um, sorry, that's long. <laughs> I guess for me, um, I guess in terms of what it might mean for me to be a man, um, I, I came from a place in England um, that is just kind of 20 miles outside of London. It's um, a town called Harlow in Essex which um, historically had a large working class population. And I remember growing up, even though we're on the outskirts of a huge cosmopolitan um, city that in many ways, I suppose, is quite progressive in its mindset, um, my hometown wasn't necessarily. So I remember like growing up, if you did something that wasn't masculine, you know, we would like throw around like, 
um, a sort of homophobic slur as like a, a way of kind of challenging people, uh, challenging people or laughing about that. Um, so that was the kind of context I grew up in where if you weren't living up to being a man, then you were basically defined as um, a homosexual, which again is about sexuality and, and completely different. But I think gender role was quite important to how we grew up. Now for me, I don't really care. Um, I think, I don't think about it a lot, but I think that probably is because I'm surrounded by people that don't really question my masculinity or don't really challenge me on it. And so I think I'm very lucky in that way. I've always been very short. Um, I've never been sporty. Um, so in primary, in school, um, I was terrible at sport and never interested. So certainly younger down, I think like part of that um, weakness does mean that you're seen as less of a man. I suppose even when you're a boy, which again is maybe something different. Um, as a result, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I have memories of like, you know, embarrassing moments of like, um, you know, cowering away from fights or like losing fights or like, um, you know, doing something embarrassed. I think that's part of growing up. Um, so yeah, I think I was challenged on that, but like eventually, like by the time I left my hometown to go to university, I was, um, that didn't really happen anymore. I think I was in a different type of place. Also a university, like, um, especially on my course, I studied literature. So the ratio of girls to boys was, I don't know, there were more girls than boys. In my college, there were like eight girls to two boys. So lucky us. And um, yeah, you know, like all of the boys were like short, studious, dressed, um, you know, very flamboyantly. So yeah, I, I think like uh, masculinity was less of a pressure there. I remember it was a bit of a, it was a culture shock. Like it was different. But it was nice. It was like, ah, oh, like all of the boys look like me and they talk like me. And I remember changing my the way I dressed, like to match all the people around me. So, and I've I've never really changed that since. Like, everyone was tucking, like wearing shirts and tucking them in, or like really bright coloured shirts, and and that's really been my style, like, ever since. Um, I definitely remember feeling at nineteen or eighteen, nineteen, like, oh yeah, like I found my people. Um, which is funny. And that changed later on when I when I started to feel like the people around me at university were too different from the people around me at home. And so I kind of pushed away from both eventually, I think. When I look back at notebooks from, I kind of started writing at 17. So if I look back around the last years of school, I'm very concerned about masculinity. I'm thinking about my dad a lot I'm thinking about myself in relation to my dad um whether I respect him as a role model whether I want to be like him whether I don't um and my relationship with my dad was more difficult around that time I guess not necessarily for those reasons but I think just as part of growing up then in university like um 
I am obviously discovering a new type of definition for being a man. I still see um, these things, although I think I was a lot more worried about sex than like just being a man. I think I just wanted to have a woman um, in some form or another. And yeah, and then I think by the time I've left university, I have a bit more of an idea of how I want to think about those expectations around me. And I think by then I'm, I started to get more of a sense of who I wanted to be independent. How do you define toxic masculinity? I think it can be. It's a concept that's been floating around like much more publicly in the last sort of five years. I think in some very useful and helpful ways. Like I think the really obvious examples are quite clear and they're, you know, like for example, very good warning signs for say people in relationship with men that may be behaving toxic or not. And also, you know, understanding what toxic behaviors are can be useful for men themselves certainly like growing up further um, after university as well yeah i think like these kind of what we understand as toxic masculinity but i don't know um those kinds of definitions it was very helpful to grow up during or to come of age during the time when those ideas were becoming more public I think it forced me to rethink how I treated women for example um, towards the end of university and after um, I think what it makes me think of most is the men in my life and in my family so For example, it's very visible from a lot of my, um, from my father, from my grandfather, and also from some of my friends at home, um, you know, the inability to express your emotions um, or to talk about problems, to show any sign of weakness. And going to university and learning about not even learning. I think I was, I was always very emotional and always very expressive, but I felt irregular for that. Going to university into an environment in which it was not only okay for men to talk about their emotions, but encouraged for once really brought home what it was like from my community. And I don't know, the knowledge is one thing, but I think it's like trying to solve that is a very different thing. I've never really known like how to bring that up with my parents in a helpful way. So they've continued, the men in my family have continued to be fairly unexpressive. And that has led to some toxic outcomes that fortunately haven't been extremely damaging. I've certainly seen the effects that's had. It's been very sad. 
my dad and my granddad, they're not, you know, walking around town, like, bench pressing, chugging beer, going like, man! <laughs> they're like, um, but I think it's exactly that. It's the, it's the shadow of those ideas that are putting pressure on or encouraging them into certain behaviours and away from others. And I guess there's been a lot written about that. Um, I'm sure many, many writers have, um, and many, you know, academics have done lots of study about that. Um, it's not my area. I can't tell you much about it. But yes, for certain, I think it's it, it's this weird fact that even though it's dealing with people, it's coming from something beyond individual people. It's like, like you say, a shadow something from society but it's sad it affects human lives in very real way real ways what do women want from a man drawn from evolutionary biology and um anthropology these ideas that um of a sort of prehistoric past with gender roles of kind of men as providers and this sort of thing. Um, and we have these questions in at the kind of meeting point of psychology and biology um, of what is what are the natural ways for men and women to behave? And what are the natural desires? Can we separate them from these pressures of society? Because society can be much more easily changed. Okay, so the reason why I came across all of this is um, in my third year at university, I wanted to write my thesis on something around this topic. So I started looking into the pickup artist community. Are you kind of familiar with all of this? No. Pickup artistry. So pickup artistry um, is... God, what is it? It's like... Um, uh, I guess it's like kind of um, people that try to establish kind of systems or methods yeah. or ways of thinking to um, get women to sleep with you more, I suppose is putting it crudely. Um, and it was kind of really popularized in, I think, the early 2000s with a book called The Game by Neil Strauss, um, who basically popularize the term and the idea so it's like they draw from evolutionary biology they draw from psychology they draw from marketing practices and also some new age stuff um and it's about kind of um they follow different there are kind of different movements different theories within this whole community some of it is very aggressively um chauvinistic and um just kind of repulsively cruel towards women other movements attempt to be a bit more um kind of balancing genders um but this really interested me as like um a kind of body of ideas um that is kind of uh yeah it's in the news quite a lot and you see it um so i was kind of interested in like looking at sexual assault and rape for my thesis so i thought that'd be a way in i ended up studying um 
a poet who writes about paedophilia instead. But I think obviously, like, I don't know, um, studying this, you kind of read these, read a couple of the books and you read the ideas and you like going into it. Part of you is like trying to um, look at this objectively and part of you kind of goes, oh yeah, this is like really interesting. But some of the ideas there are like, um, some of the ones that I thought were quite, actually I need to think, was there anything useful from it? I remember going through a phase where like, I was kind of interested in like looking at their ideas and seeing if you could balance that with not like treating women like shit or try and balance that with some sort of feminism. Um, and eventually I was just like, yeah, um, and didn't really think about it. What do women want? I think men, to be honest, it's simple, isn't it? They just want someone to be honest and they just want the person they're attracted to. What does society want from a man? I actually think we're at a moment in most kind of kind of quote-unquote western societies though certainly beyond that i think around the world we're seeing a moment where this kind of vision for new rules in society or new ideas is clashing with older visions so i think there are two answers to this question and i think this is you know when it comes down to it, what everyone is arguing about all the time in all regards. Mm. So I think the gender aspect of this is that, yeah, 50%, 49%, 51% of society are going backwards to, to try and solve the problems we're all facing and saying that we need a stricter return to more traditional masculine roles, such as... Um, I guess, like we've described, um, men should be providers, men should be strong, um, men should be more restrained with their emotions and a return to that past is going to solve a lot of the problems we find. Then the other version, which is, which society is certainly increasingly accommodating in different communities. I think often this divide falls across countries and cities the countryside and cities is of men actively working to try to balance the imbalance that has historically been between men and women and so actually it means listening to women's experiences and the problems that women face, both personal and structural in their society, in their in the forces that shape their lives, and trying to work to bring a bit more of a balance to that. Often those behaviours involve 
um, I think being kind of sharing out the roles that would have traditionally been given more strictly to men and women. So kind of balancing between work and house cleaning and child raising. We see a lot of that. We see um, a move towards uh, sharing emotions, a move away from having to be strong necessarily. Um, A move away from masculine aggression often. And that group believes that more of society's problems can be solved that way. So I think there are two answers. Do we need a ritual to become a man? In a sense, yes. In that I think you need to go through some sort of hero's journey. Hmm. Which in anthropology is ultimately what a ritual is doing. It's always involving some sort of cross across a threshold and some sort of return to the world. You see this with different tribes in um, Africa, in South America, for example. So yes, certainly. I think we don't have shared rituals. I think what we have are these very personal rites of passage. In my trade as a writer, like I think this is really exciting because novel writing is all about writing personal stories, not um, you know, political treatises on what should be a, a general rite of passage. Mm-hmm. So living in this moment where there isn't a general rule, often we have individuals kind of finding, stumbling, or consciously creating their own journeys. And so it's really exciting that we're at a moment where potentially there are millions of these stories and some of them are very important and beautiful and moving to discover and to tell and to create. Are there unique qualities of masculinity? I think, on the one hand, yes. But certainly men behave in ways that are identifiably different from women. That's definitely clear. And certain, like we, you know, I think it would be wrong to say otherwise. In terms of whether it matters why or what that comes from, whether that's like constructed and can be changed or whether that's biological and can't be, or whether even that's biological and can be, or societal and can't be. I don't know if that's solvable. But I think it's a very interesting <clears throat> line of questioning to follow. I don't know the answer, and so I don't think I can give one. It's a man, a professor in the UK of maths, who discovered something really interesting. There's a name for this prize. So there's this mathematics prize that's like um, very prestigious. It's close to the Nobel or the Fields Medal. It's called something different. And one of the previous winners was a woman who discovered that both men and women have the same neural networks as men and women. So both sexes have both sets of neural networks for male behaviours and female behaviours. So in terms of behaviour, it seems like there is now some neuroscientific evidence that um, 
both are possibilities. Something you should look at, find, find a lawyer to interview who can tell you about this case. You know, there's that case of the, I don't know if you saw it before, there's that South African runner who, she's a, um, she's a female, but she has a very high level of testosterone in her body. And there was a lot of um, abuse online about, you know, how she um, looked like a man. A lot of people were kind of, um, you know, really writing horrible things about this. Um, Anyway, so in Switzerland this week, there was a legal case saying that whether she should compete in male sports events or female sports events. Because she was born a female, but she was also born with the ability to create more testosterone, which made her a better athlete. So should she be competing as a male? The court ruled that she has to, she can compete in a female race, but she has to take tablets that would reduce her testosterone levels which is a very interesting decision. I don't know if I agree or disagree. I haven't looked into the case, but you should. I think that'd be really interesting. Is pornography affecting masculinity? Definitely, yes. The question is how, isn't it? Pornography is something I um, really struggle to know what to think about. Um... There's a good book on it. Your brain I bet on, there is. Your what brain. On, your brain on. Your brain porn. on porn. I've heard of that. Yeah. I've I've um you know on like the NoFap website they've got some great neuroscience studies on like what porn does to your brain and the horrific effects. I think it's definitely true. I definitely grew up like watching porn. Um, yeah. Who didn't? Right. I think one of the obvious ways it's affected masculinity that I think is not necessarily obvious is I think actually this is a major rite of passage for modern man, modern teenagers is watching porn um, and kind of like going through that sort of discovery of masturbation as a child, which is through porn. It's not really like without porn now, is it? Not it's as a hundred percent probably a hundred percent. Um, <clears throat> I've read bits and bobs. I've read like, um, you know, some kind of feminist accounts that are extremely anti-pornography as like a very exploitative industry. I've read some um, feminist accounts, kind of uh, what you call choice feminism, which is about promoting equality as possibilities of choice that are a bit more, um, if not pro-porn, then certainly accepting of porn. I don't know what my position is on it. And I think it's difficult because like, um, you know, potentially as a man, I'm, I'm very guilty there. I think it's a really hard thing to tackle academically without, without your personal thoughts or feelings getting into it. Like saying objective as a man, reading about that or studying it, it's very difficult. Something interesting to know would, how did pornography change in the past with previous technological innovations like I know have you ever seen the um, Japanese prints 
the like kind of uh, middle ages Japanese pornography. Not sure. So even um, oh, fuck's sake, I don't know the name. I don't know what you'd call it, but. Um, I've seen examples of like prints from several hundred years ago that are, are pornographic um, and were circulated in Japan. Um, you know, very explicit images. Um, and so I, I guess it shows that there is a an extent to which this cuts across cultures and in which technology is always kind of keeping a pace of it. So this would have been the invention of the printing press perhaps. I don't know if it might, maybe not in Japan, because they probably wouldn't have had that technology till quite late. Um, but certainly, you know, even like recreating prints or re- recreating paintings. Even the ancient Greeks had statues of naked women. Thanks for joining today. Maybe a bit more aware and a bit more curious.